The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 480th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Hello, Mrs. Student. Hello, Mrs. Student. (laughs) (laughs) It feels so nice to say that finally. It surely does. We made it official. We got eloped. So we are now married. We decided to do that for our fifth anniversary. Yes, indeed, we did. We went down to the little Tavares courthouse and they had this room where you could put up to 10 people. So we went in there with my folks and my sister and niece came down from Iowa. And Kelly, we consider our spectacular crew a part of our family. Yes, we do. So we decided we were going to do a Facebook Live. So they got to join us live during the elopement. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah. So it was really neat to be able to share that with all of you guys. Uh, We have the video up in the Spooktacular crew. We also put pictures up on Instagram and over on Facebook and stuff like that. So if you want to check out our elopement, you can do that there. I was so pleased with the way the room was decorated. I had no idea it was going to look like that. I just figured it was going to be four walls. I did too. The shears and the curtain shears and the lights dangling behind it, little flicker lights. And it was just really pretty. Yeah, I basically thought we'd be in like this little closet. Everybody would just be standing there while we went through the (laughs) process. But yeah, there were chairs and yeah, it was nicely decorated. So it was a a pleasant little quick elopement. And then we decided we didn't have a lot of time. Why don't we do a weekend trip down to the Keys because you'd never been before. And despite the fact that I've lived in Florida now for almost 16 years, and every time I came back here to go on vacation, I always would go to the Keys. I hadn't been the entire time I've lived here. (laughs) I was shocked by that fact. So we went on down there, went all the way down to Key West. Hopefully you guys got to see some of the stuff we put up. We visited the Coral Castle on our way. And then we stopped in Key Largo and did a glass bottom boat tour to go out to the Coral. Went down to Key West. And one of the places that we visited was the Hemingway House. And that is what we're doing on this episode. It was a quick trip, but it was packed with all kinds of fun stuff. It was, and we highly recommend visiting the Keys, especially Key West. It is so full of old Victorian homes and history there. There's a lot of partying, too, so if you like to do that, that goes on there as well. Yeah, we were pretty much out by nightfall, (laughs) back to our resort. And we visited the Key West Cemetery, which I have a feeling will be coming up on a Haunted Cemeteries episode, because there's a ghost there, too. It better. (laughs) 
All right. Well, before we get into all that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Randy, Laura, D, Greg, Leah, Sam, Andrea, and Graylin. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. We have all heard the phrase, like a canary in a coal mine. This phrase references the practice of miners taking canaries into mines with them as a means to detect poisonous gases. If a canary dropped dead in the mine, miners knew they'd better get out. Even though this seems like a practice from many decades ago, canaries were still used in a small number of mines as late as 1996, when British legislation officially ordered miners to replace canaries with electronic carbon monoxide sensors. But long before that, miners knew something needed to change to protect the birds. They needed to resuscitate these fragile feathered friends. In the 1920s, Seep Gorman and company invented a cage for canaries that employed an attached oxygen tank to resuscitate the birds if they exhibited signs of poisoning from lethal gases in the mines. This unique cage used three glass walls and the fourth wall was a grill with ventilation holes. If the canary fell from its perch, an airtight door was closed over the holes and an oxygen tank attached to the roof of the cage would then be opened to revive the canary. The canaries became beloved companions of the miners with numerous stories shared of the interactions between bird and miner. Of course, many lives were saved due to their relationship as well. The common practice using canaries in mines was retired in 1986 when a digital sensor known as the electronic nose started being employed for noxious gas detection. A machine that is able to resuscitate canaries certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, This Month in History. In the month of March, on the 24th in 1934, the Philippine Islands and the South Pacific were granted independence by President Franklin D. Roosevelt after nearly 50 years of American control. The Tidings-McDuffie Act was an act of Congress that established the process for the Philippines to become an independent country after a 10-year transition period. Once the president signed the act, it was then sent to the Philippine Senate for approval, which occurred on May 1, 1934. Following the terms of the Independence Act, Filipinos elected delegates for a constitutional convention on July 10, 1934. Roosevelt then approved the Philippine Constitution on March 23, 1935. For the following 10 years, the Philippines remained U.S. territory. Matters pertaining to foreign affairs, defense, and monetary issues remained under U.S. jurisdiction. However, all other internal matters were determined by the Philippine people. During the Commonwealth time frame, duties were exacted on a graduated scale, but the trade provisions were ultimately amended in 1939 in favor of the Philippines. We decided to take a long weekend trip to the Florida Keys for our honeymoon, and one of the locations we visited was a former home of American author Ernest Hemingway in Key West. Hemingway loved Key West and left a mark on the town. He more than likely has left his spirit here as well. 
Join us as we share the life of this incredibly talented and troubled man and the history and haunts of his former home. West was originally home to the Calusa Indians. They were also known as the Shell Indians, and they controlled most of southern Florida. They built their homes on stilts with woven palmetto leaves as roofs and no walls. Now, I know it's, you know, warm here in Florida and stuff, but I would want some walls on my house. You don't want the critters coming in? No. I mean, that's snuggling up with you. Probably part of the reason why they had them up on stilts. I mean, it was probably for water, too, but also creepy crawlies. Yeah, because you haven't seen anything climbing walls around here. No, nothing at all. (laughs) Especially all those huge lizards at the Coral Castle. They fished and hunted for their food, leaving behind shell mounds. The tribe died out in the late 1700s. The Spanish were the first Europeans here, and they called this Cayo Hueso, meaning bone key, which may relate to stories that the Spanish found this southernmost or most western key to be littered with bones. Great Britain took possession in 1763, and the United States acquired Florida in 1821. The Florida Keys were not a very inhabited area. Mostly smugglers and pirates used the Keys as hideouts. Cubans and Bahamians visited the Keys often as well. The Spanish governor of Cuba deeded Key West to an officer of the Royal Spanish Navy Artillery named Juan Pablo Salas in 1815. He sold the island to U.S. businessman John W. Simonton for 2,000 pesos in 1822. Simonton divided the island into plots, and the U.S. brought a strong military presence there. Cuban migrants also flooded Key West, and in 1832, the city was incorporated. Key West became the largest city in Florida by 1850. Okay, largest city in Florida, Key West. Wow. And by 1860... It was the wealthiest city per capita in America. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, you're like, oh, it's just this little place because it's not very big. We walked all over it. And it was the wealthiest at that particular time. It was here in Key West in 1851 that marine architect and salvage wrecker Asa Tift built his Spanish colonial home. Tift designed the house himself. Yellow fever swept through Key West and killed Tiff's wife and children, and Tiff eventually died in 1889. No one was left in the family to inherit the property, and so it sat abandoned for 40 years. On April 29, 1931, American writer Ernest Hemingway and his second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer, purchased the home and property with financial help from Pauline's uncle. Hemingway was born in Oak Park, Illinois in 1899, to Dr. Clarence E. Hemingway, a physician and concert singer at Grace Hall. His father took him fishing, hunting, and camping, which instilled a lifelong love of adventure. Hemingway started writing early and got his first job at 17, writing for the Kansas City Star. Shortly after that, he joined a volunteer ambulance unit that was headed to the Italian front in World War I. Hemingway was carrying chocolate and cigarettes for soldiers on the front line on July 8, 1918, when he was seriously wounded by mortar fire. And despite those injuries, Ernie hoisted a wounded Italian soldier and carried him to safety. He would later receive the Italian War Merit Cross for his action. 
Hemingway had surgery to remove shrapnel from both legs and was sent to the Red Cross Hospital in Milan to recover. While there, he fell in love with American nurse Agnes von Kurowski, who was seven years older than him. The 1996 movie In Love and War was inspired by this time in Hemingway's life. Hemingway believed the two would marry when they were back in America, but Agnes broke his heart in a Dear John letter that informed him that she agreed to marry an Italian officer. Ernie would never recover from this rejection, and his future marriages would reflect that. He would always leave his wives before they could leave him. Hemingway got a job working for the Toronto Star Weekly when he returned home. He moved to Chicago in 1920 and met the sister of his roommate. Hadley Richardson would become Hemingway's first wife, and the two went to Europe, where they lived in Paris. A lot of the stories that I read about this said that she favored Agnes a lot, so that was kind of his way of recovering. Ah, There, Hemingway joined many expatriate artists and continued to write for the Toronto Star. The couple returned to Toronto and had their son, John, nicknamed Bumby. In 1923, Hemingway and Hadley went to Spain, and he became fascinated with bullfighting. As a matter of fact, every year they would go to Pamplona and watch the running of the bulls after that. People started referring to him by the nickname Papa at this time, too. This time in Spain inspired The Sun Also Rises, which was published in 1926 and is considered Hemingway's greatest work. Ernie started an affair with a woman named Pauline Pfeiffer at this time. I'd heard that she was Hadley's best friend in some of the things I read, so I'm not sure if that's true or whatever, but she was connected to both of them in some way. I believe that was referenced in the tour that we did at the house. This would end his marriage with Hadley. Hemingway married Pauline in 1927, and in April of 1928, the couple relocated to Key West via steamer ship. Their first home was on the second floor of a car dealership. Ernie's Model A was to be delivered here to the Trevmore Ford dealership, but the shipment was delayed, so the couple decided to stay in the Trevmore Hotel above the dealership. You killed two birds with one stone there. You can get a car or stay. I love how both has the same name, same building, just two different <laughs> floors. Right. They would be there for seven weeks. Hemingway completed the first draft of a farewell to arms there. The couple then moved in to 907 Whitehead Street, and would live there for 13 years. There's nothing particularly special about the house, especially compared to some of the Victorian homes that dot the landscape of Key West. Yeah, we spent probably, I don't know, what, 30 minutes just walking around taking pictures of houses, whether they were historical or not. They were beautiful. Yeah. We'll post a bunch of those up on Instagram. Yeah, we took a bunch of pictures of the homes and then also (laughs) a ton of feral chickens and roosters. Yeah, the story goes the Cubans like to have chickens around, especially roosters, for cockfighting. And then it got outlawed and they were told that they couldn't do that anymore. So I guess their way of getting back at the government was to say, okay, well, then we're going to let them all go free. So to this day, you have a bunch of protected chickens and roosters running around. Not only Key West, they were all the way up in Marathon. They were. Near our (laughs) resort that we were staying at. Because at first we saw these roosters in the public's parking lot there and we're like, what in the world are all these roosters and chickens doing in the parking lot? When we got to Key West, we figured out what was going on. It reminded me of Kauai because they have wild chickens all over there. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they're protected. So even though we have all this stuff going on with chickens and you think people would be out there hunting them down, not allowed. It's a $1,000 fine for killing one. Yeah, pretty much everything down there is protected. It's all parks reserve and so on and so forth. The Hemingway house is square in shape with two levels and lots of windows. The verandas wrap around the entire house on both levels. 
The house is in the middle of beautiful gardens that are filled with cat houses and lots of cats. Yes. I mean, I think most people have heard about Hemingway and his cats. Well, there are still a ton of cats here. They are descendants of Snow White, the first polydactyl cat introduced to the property by Hemingway. Snow White was given to Hemingway by Wrecker and Salvager, Captain Stanley Dexter. Yeah, so it's really cool to see all of these polydactyl cats and that kind of thing. I actually had a polydactyl cat as part of my life for a few years, <laughs> many, many years ago. But yeah. A mittens kittens. Yes. An interesting piece of furniture in the garden is a porcelain trough that is used to water the cats. That trough is really a men's urinal from the original Sloppy Joe's bar that was located on Green Street, where Captain Tony's saloon is today. When the rent was raised, Sloppy Joe gutted the bar and moved it to its current location. And Hemingway asked for the <laughs> and Hemingway asked for the urinal since he had poured so much money down the drain drinking at Sloppy Joe's. It makes sense. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little way to commemorate all that spending. <laughs> Pauline was less than enthused. You can and- <laughs> imagine him coming home and going, look, honey, I brought home a huge urinal. <laughs> well, she was less than enthused. And you can see how she tried to conceal the porcelain memento with decorative tiles. Yeah, we'll put that picture up on Instagram, too. Because when you look at it, there's this big pot behind it where the water's flowing out of and it goes down into the trough. And it looks like a really fancy piece that they would have gotten over from Italy or something because of all these decorative <laughs> tiles on the outside of it. Then when you find out what it is, it's like, okay, she did a good job hiding it. Yes, but I definitely knew what it was when I saw it. <laughs> well, I guess when I first saw it, I was looking from a distance so all I could really see were the tiles. But yeah, you get up to it and then you're like, hmm, <laughs> this looks familiar. It's the watering hole for the kitties now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a writing studio in the back of the house and a pool. The pool replaced a boxing ring that Hemingway loved to use to box against locals. Ernie was on assignment and away in 1938, and Pauline took the opportunity to get rid of the eyesore. She spent $20,000 having the coral and limestone bedrock dug out, and this would be the first residential pool on the island. Ernie wasn't happy to see the pool, and of course, his boxing ring is gone that he loved. And when he heard the price, he took a penny from his pocket, flicked it in Pauline's direction and exclaimed, you might as well take my last red cent. Pauline commemorated the moment by having the penny encased in concrete under glass that you can still see today right there by the pool. We'll put a picture of that up on Instagram as well. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I hadn't heard a whole lot about Hemingway's house. I'd heard that, you know, it had some hauntings going on there, but I had definitely heard that story. So I was searching all around. I'm like, where is that penny? When the Hemingways moved in, Pauline was pregnant with the couple's second child. For years, Pauline had worked as a fashion editor for Vogue magazine, and she was now going to use her fashion sense to renovate and decorate this home. Ceiling fans were replaced with a variety of chandeliers, which weren't practical, but they were beautiful. There were Italian Murano glass chandeliers, a Tiffany shade, Moroccan lantern light, and a Spanish Morris chandelier. Some of the Hemingway's furniture is still here in the house. When you first step into the house, it has a central hall design with rooms coming off it. To the right is the living room. This still has an antique Spanish walnut chest on chest that held jewelry and other valuables. The top part came off and was taken on travels. In this room is also a replica of Ernie's beloved boat, the Pilar, which was a 38-foot handcrafted wooden yacht made by the Wheeler Shipyard in Coney Island. 
Hemingway ordered customized details that included extra-large fuel tanks so he could stay out on the water longer, a live fish well, and a wooden roller spanning the transom so it was easier to haul in fish. He bought the Pilar in 1934 and named it not only for his heroine in For Whom the Bell Tolls, but also his wife Pauline's nickname. As we were going through the house, we were doing the self-guided tour, so I was reading stuff off the phone. I just want to play this little piece from it right here. Note the fishing display on the far wall, including a replica of Hemingway's boat, the Pilar. The 38-foot Wheeler Shipyard Playmate was bought with a publishing advance and delivered to the island in late 1934. Hemingway was an avid fisherman throughout his life and very much enjoyed fighting the marlin and tarpon along the Gulf Stream current that runs between Key West and Cuba. In fact, it was the world-class fishing in these waters that originally drew him to Key West. He reportedly won every fishing tournament in Key West, Havana, and Bimini. His Cuban friend Gregorio Fuentes, seen in the lithograph image with Ernest, he captained the Pilar and became a close fishing companion. Ultimately, Fuentes was the inspiration for Santiago, the protagonist of arguably Hemingway's most well-known novel, The Old Man and the Sea, published in 1952. The novel was awarded the Pulitzer Prize the following year and led to Hemingway's 1954 Nobel Prize for Literature. He lost the boat when he left it in Cuba in 1960. This living room had been divided when the Hemingways lived here. So I think this was like your standard parlor that would be two different rooms. Yes, the men's side and the women's side. Yeah. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Across the hall is the dining room and kitchen. There's antique Spanish furniture made of walnut in the dining room there. The head chair has a metal bar attached to the back that served as a resting place for swords. I thought that was so cool. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, and it's only that chair, so uh, I guess you better not cross the head of the table. <laughs> I suppose not. And of course, you're thinking you have a sword off with your head. It could make the head of the table a whole different term. Oh, wow. <laughs> I went there. You sure did. There's a credenza, and on top of that is a unique device we had never seen before. It was an antique bottle lock used to secure alcohol. So nobody's drinking your brandy or whiskey if you don't want them to drink it. There are pictures of Hemingway with his wives on the walls, as well as with his son, Bumby. And there's a picture of his two sons he had with Pauline, Patrick, and Gregory, who later became Gloria. Now, what happened here is nowhere in the house or on the tour do you hear anything other than Patrick and Gregory, and it was the boys' room upstairs. I wanted to find out after the divorce, did Pauline continue to live in the house? I wanted to know more about Pauline. When I looked her up, all of a sudden I see that it says Patrick and Gloria. And I was like, wait a minute, they had two sons. Where, who's Gloria? Well, as you go down that rabbit hole, you find out that Gregory was actually transgender by the time he got to the end of his life. And he started this as a teenager. I don't know all the specifics behind it, but let me just say that Hemingway caught him wearing one of his, I think it was his third wife's pantyhose 
when he was 12 and it did not go well and that probably did not help their relationship. And later on, Gloria is going to go into a women's restroom dressed as a woman. And we're back in the, I believe this would have been the 50s. He got arrested for that. There was a fight between Pauline and Ernest about this over the phone. And Pauline died the next day and they blamed each other for her stress that she had over this. And they didn't talk to each other for years. They finally did talk to each other, but did not see each other ever again. So there's, there's a lot of pain and hurt and all kinds of stuff there. It was something I had no idea about that doesn't get covered a lot. Yeah, I had never heard anything about it. It's very tragic. Yeah. And he wrote a book and all that. So and he died back in 2001, I believe. So anyway, that's the story behind Gloria. The kitchen originally had been outside. Pauline decorated the kitchen walls with Portuguese tiles and the counter sink and stove are higher than standard height to accommodate Hemingway's stature. And I do remember as we were looking at that, I commented that that's kind of how our house is. It's higher, so it's better for you than for me. <laughs> well, it did state that the kitchen counters were raised because it, w- it would hurt his back to bend over and so forth. And that is one thing I love about our house because working in the kitchen or doing anything in the bathrooms, the counters are higher. Yeah, and you're, it's, you're not bent over. <laughs> it's better. And do you remember why he would be bent over the counter a lot? Could it be cleaning the fish that he caught? That would be it. So... I don't know that Pauline appreciated him cleaning his fish in the kitchen there, too. But Well, the Hemingways also had the luxury of a modern refrigerator, which was practically unheard of on the island. And to go back to the fish cleaning, I'm sure the kitty cats loved it. <laughs> oh, I hadn't even thought about that. He probably <laughs> threw some guts out for him, too. Ooh. Yummy. Upstairs were three rooms. The nursemaid's room, the boy's room, and the master bedroom. The nanny's room has a bathroom connected to it, and it got water from a cistern that was on the roof, giving the house something similar to indoor plumbing. The wall tiles are from Paris. After the boys no longer needed a nanny, Pauline used the room for sewing and other projects. The boys' room had displays representing Ernie's time in the Red Cross in Italy, his war correspondence work during World War II, for which he was awarded the Bronze Star, and pictures of him fishing the Gulf Stream. He absolutely fell in love with fishing in this area. Before he had the Pilar, he chartered a boat owned by Sloppy Joe Russell. When we entered the master bedroom, there was, of course, a cat on the bed. But of course. (laughs) I mean, the cats have the run of the property. They can go anywhere they want. They can do anything they want. And you better be nice to them. We actually put up a picture of us posing with one of them who would stick around long enough for us to do that. He had a lot of toes on those back feet, Kelly. Yes, he did. Front ones, too, but the back ones were the easiest for me to count at the time. (laughs) Yeah, and you gave him some love. I did. The bed is original to the couple. The headboard was a souvenir from one of their trips to Spain. This wasn't an actual headboard. It was made into a headboard. This actually was a wooden gate from a 17th century Spanish monastery, and the original gate hinges are still attached. I know. I loved it. It was so cool. Yeah, it was very cool. And I mean, it looked like it was made to be a headboard. So it, it worked perfectly. It truly did. They finished it off with two big beams on the each end mm-hmm. on each end. But yeah, and I took a picture of those hinges that are still attached. Yeah, to. we're going to have a lot of pictures up from the Hemingway house because we were taking pictures of everything. At the foot of the bed were two other antiques owned by the Hemingways, a midwife chair and a birthing chair from 18th century Spain. As you're getting a feel for their taste, they definitely like Paris tiles and Spanish furniture. Yes, they do. Ernie had a unique use for the chairs. 
He felt they made perfect fishing seats because the handle affixed to the top of them made them easy to transport to the piers and docks. So you just imagine them watching Ernest Hemingway sitting out there on the dock. In his birthing chair. On his birthing (laughs) chair fishing. (laughs) The house has a basement that's not open to the public, and this was mostly used as a wine cellar. The writing studio in back had originally been a hayloft. And it was also referred to as a carriage house. And then when we were on the veranda, there was a thing there about the fact that there was this beam that went across from the veranda to the writing studio. Yeah, a window in the writing studio. A window over to the writing studio. And that was for the cats. (laughs) Diane seemed to think. I thought that he went across. I'm like, what, like walking across a... A beam? <laughs> like a gymnast. <laughs> He's doing the balance beam. It's like the tightrope walker, despite the fact that it was up two stories. <laughs> oh, it was for the cats to come across and visit him. Yes. But it's no longer there today. One of Hemingway's royal typewriters still sits on the desk, and you can almost imagine him sitting here in the morning hours before noon, typing out the 600 to 1,000 words he committed to each day. While in Key West, he completed A Farewell to Arms, To Have and Have Not, Death in the Afternoon, Green Hills of Africa, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, and Men Without Women, as well as a large portion of For Whom the Bell Tolls. In the afternoons, Ernest would head out fishing or into the downtown Key West area to hang out with friends. Hemingway loved Key West, and he loved his imprint on so many places. Sloppy Joe's Bar is probably the most famous place, and it would be here that he met his third wife, Martha Gellhorn. Gellhorn was a well-known writer and journalist, and she would be a correspondent in every war during her lifetime, from the Spanish Civil War in 1937 to the Gulf War in 1991. I thought that was an amazing span of time, all the way to the Gulf War in 1991. That's, you know, our lifetimes. Right, absolutely. As a matter of fact, She was one of the first five correspondents on the beach in Normandy on D-Day. She was the only woman. Amazing. The only woman journalist there for D-Day on the beach. Pretty incredible. Yeah. The two started their affair when Ernie and Pauline were still married. They divorced in November 1940 and Gellhorn married Hemingway that December. The couple moved to Cuba about 10 miles from Havana, but they would not be happy. They divorced in 1945. The following year, Hemingway married Time magazine writer Mary Welsh, and she would finally be his perfect match. You know, we're giving all this kudos to Martha Gellhorn. I also want to give Pauline her due. Not only did she have fashion sense because she was a Vogue editor, but editor, she edited most of Hemingway's stuff. So she was very much a part of all of these great works that, you know, some of the best he ever wrote was due to her. She would go through and edit, make comments, refine everything he was doing, and that's when he was his most productive is when he was with her as well. Very nice. Mary and Ernie shared many same interests, including fishing, hunting, and skiing. The two traveled the world together. They even faced death together on one of their adventures. Here's a little bit of that. He's a true sportsman and avid hunter as well as a fisherman. He enjoyed and was inspired by hunting safaris across Africa which we got that word earlier today. Mm -hmm. The most famous of those excursions was a 1954 Christmas gift for his fourth wife, Mary Walsh. They took a photo safari over the Nile region of Africa, photographing and observing the wildlife. The trip continued south to Victoria Falls, but it was cut short when the sightseeing plane crashed. 
Fortunately, no one on board suffered injuries. In that audio, we referenced hearing the word Africa earlier in the day. We shared about that on the bonus cast for this week. It was about the Fort East Martello Museum and us meeting Robert the Doll. And while we were visiting with Robert the Doll, we'd gotten out our ghost tube app and we got two words. We got Africa and grandfather. And so when we get here and we're looking at all of this stuff, all of a sudden I was like, I wonder if that's why we got Africa earlier, because I couldn't think of how that would pertain to Robert the Doll. And then grandfather Hemingway, most of his life went by the nickname Papa, which a lot of people call their grandfather by that name. So I just I thought that was kind of interesting. Very synchronistic. And if you want to listen to that bonus cast, it was at the $5 and above level. Give up your coffee for the month and you get that plus all the reduxes. We just put up another redux, Golden Lamb Inn, and all of the bonus content behind that. 200 episodes plus. (laughs) Right. Lots of content to listen to. Now, the couple didn't have injuries from that crash, but something really seemed to be after them because get this. The plane they boarded shortly after the crash burst into flames upon takeoff. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, the angel of death is after us here. No kidding. The couple and the pilot sustained injuries, and some publications back in the States had even begun inaccurately reporting the death of Ernest and Mary. Ernest's injuries were so severe that he remained hospitalized when he received the Nobel Prize for Literature and had to record his acceptance speech from his hospital bed. He would suffer the residual effects of those injuries for the rest of his life. Hemingway called Mary Miss Mary, and she called him Papa. I imagine they were so adorable together. I know. Death would bring an end to Ernie's final marriage. The New York Times reported on July 3, 1961, that Ernest Hemingway was found dead of a shotgun wound in the head at his home here today. His wife Mary said that he killed himself accidentally while cleaning the weapon. He was a couple weeks short of his 62nd birthday. Some friends had indicated that Hemingway had been depressed. His health was failing him, and he had been in pain. Ernie knew guns, so for him to be careless when cleaning one would be strange. There was also the fact that hunting season was closed in Idaho, where Mary and Ernest were living at the time. So it wasn't like he was cleaning the gun getting ready to go hunting. He had lost many manuscripts that he couldn't retrieve in Cuba and his father had suffered from mental illness and taken his own life. This brings us to the Hemingway curse. The curse isn't something mystical, it's mental illness. The family has suffered seven suicides. Actress Mariel Hemingway became a mental health advocate and appeared in the documentary Running from Crazy to talk about her grandfather and sister and their suicides. Mariel had said, I think we live in a world where creativity is defined by how much pain you go through. And that's a misinterpretation of artistry. I think if my grandfather were around today, he would go, wow, I didn't have to suffer. Perhaps that is why Hemingway is still around in the afterlife, particularly here in Key West. Shortly after Hemingway passed away, neighbors and people passing the Hemingway house claimed to see the author walking in the garden around the house, and they thought they saw him inside the house. What makes these stories even more credible is that some of the witnesses hadn't heard that Hemingway had died. Most reports of seeing him in the house were on the second floor, especially out on the veranda. People would wave up at him, and he would wave back. Oh my goodness. This was something he did in life as well. And the cats were apparently seeing him too, because he was playing with them, and they were playing back. Tour guides claimed to have seen Ernie in his writing studio, and the typewriters heard making noise. Now, we walked through with our trusty dandy little recorder going, 
didn't pick up anything. Of course, there's a lot of contamination in there. There was a group tour going on. There were other people walking through and talking. The writer's studio, it's a very narrow little doorway, so you kind of have to take turns to go in there and look around. So I was hoping we might catch something in there, but we didn't catch any EVP or anything like that. Ernest isn't the only person haunting the house, though. This was Pauline's house, too, and she seems to have returned in the afterlife as well. She died in Hollywood, California in 1951 while visiting her sister. Reports said she died of shock, which some places call an aneurysm now. But we also read that a tumor caused her to release too much adrenaline and this drove up her blood pressure to dangerous heights. Whatever the case, Pauline was still living in the house in Key West at the time of her death. Despite that fact, she's buried in an unmarked grave in Hollywood. The house was owned by Ernest until his death in 1961 when it was sold to Bernice Dixon and then opened as a museum in 1964. Pauline's favorite spot in the house was at the top of the central staircase. It was from here that she could both look out into the writing studio and see Ernest at work and see her children playing outside. So that's where her ghost is seen a lot of the time is at the top of that staircase. Pauline was also a smoker and would do this often at the entrance gate, and passersby have sometimes seen her doing that very thing. Occasionally, the apparition walks up and down the sidewalk. And there are ghost kitties here as well, with staff and visitors both reporting the sensation of cats rubbing their legs when there's no cat near them. There was even a couple that had lived in the house before it became a museum in that kind of interim, and they would wake up and see this black and white cat getting up on the bed. And the one guy, he even said the cat was like on his chest and doing the whole how they need your chest Aww. and then purr and everything. And then it would just fade away. So that's how they knew it wasn't oh one of the cats goodness. from the house. And it happened multiple times to them. So there's definitely a black and white kitty that's haunting the place. They also do this thing, especially at Sloppy Joe's, where they do like look-alike storytelling contests and stuff, or at least they did back in the day. And there was one of the men who got up there to tell a story and he literally said, while I was walking here tonight, I went by the Hemingway house and I looked up and saw Ernest Hemingway standing up on that veranda and I waved to him and he waved back. I love it. I don't know if it was a true story, if he was pulling people's legs, but that was pretty interesting. Now, since we're talking about Hemingway and ghosts, I thought we should talk about his other home, not the one that was up in Idaho, but in Cuba, he had an estate that he, of course, had to leave. This estate was called La Finca Vigia. A lot of people aren't probably very familiar with this, but apparently he likes to haunt this place as well. And I can see why, because he had to leave behind his boat here. So his boat's still there at this. I think they've opened it as, as a museum now. And he had all these manuscripts he had left there. This is out of the book Haunted Key West by David L. Sloan. There was a woman named Idania Rodriguez who had worked at the Finca for several years. She started at the gate giving directions for tour buses but eventually moved to the guest house making sure people didn't try to walk away with any of the Hemingway's belongings. So thankfully somebody was looking out for their stuff. And it was here that she had her first ghostly encounter. She said, it was the middle of the afternoon and I was standing in the main room of the guest house. It's up on the second floor so the only way to get in is from the steps outside. And then you can only come in a little bit because I'm standing there to stop you. There was nobody on the steps at the time, so I was just waiting for people to come when I heard footsteps in the room behind me. Nobody is allowed back there, so I ran back to tell them to leave, but the footsteps stopped. It happened two more times that month, and the last time I saw the shadow of a man, but no one was there. I told my boss I didn't like it there, so the next week they moved me to the main house. Adania's responsibility in the main house was stopping people from grabbing Ernest's stuff through the open windows of the house. Can you imagine? 
But her job also included preventing photos from being taken of the home's interior or collecting $10 for each photo. (laughs) You want to take a picture? Give me some money. Yep. The main house staff also had the responsibility of locking everything up at night, a task that would soon lead to Adanya's departure. Nani was closing up the entry room when I locked the windows of the bathroom and the library. I was standing by the shoe rack when I could feel someone behind me. I turned around, but no one was there. I started to walk back to the main room when I felt a cold breath by my ear and a voice that whispered, what are you doing here? It was a man's voice. He spoke English. (laughs) But there was no man around. I told Nadia and she said it was just the ghost, but he was not bad. I was not sure I agreed. Adanya took to closing the exteriors of the house after the whispering incident. It seemed that nowhere on the estate was safe for her. Perhaps the ghost had taken a liking to her dark eyes and the curls in her hair. It was a full moon the night that I saw him, and I was the last one still closing. I was walking down the path to the pool when I heard a stick break on the ground behind me. When I turned around, I saw a man coming down the path. He was tall and red-faced, walking slowly. He was dressed in Bermudas, a light baggy shirt, and leather sandals. I started to walk away from him, but he continued to follow. The faster I walked away, the faster he followed me. When I realized who was following me, I went straight to the gate and left my key hanging on a palm tree before running home. Oh, my. (laughs) And she resigned the next day. Never went back. The Hemingway House in Key West is a must-see, whether you're a Hemingway fan or not. The cats are worth the visit. Bring cash because that's all they accept for tickets. And bring your sensitivity so maybe you, too, can experience the spirits of the Hemingways. Is the Hemingway house haunted? That That is for you to decide. Well, we've been there, so we don't have to say we need to see that. But you all need to see it if you haven't been there. So if you're ever in the Keys, make sure you make your way all the way down to Key West. There's so much great stuff to see, and this house is definitely worth taking in. For me, it was just special because I've always loved his writing and everything. Just to be like, he walked in this house. Right. There's his studio. Look at his typewriter. He typed on that typewriter. It's incredible. He looked out this window to get inspired. That penny on the ground was actually in his pant pocket at some point. I know. I just love doing that stuff when I go into old places. We do want to give a special shout out to a couple that we met. They were staying at the same resort as us. They were parked next to us and they were getting their Jeep ready. They were going to go down to Key West. Yes. Their names were Christy and Tom. And Christy, well, Christy was hanging out at their Jeep truck while her husband was getting some stuff, I guess, from their room because they were checking out that day. And so she started asking us about the podcast because we have a sticker on our back window and, of course, our little skeleton hanging onto the roof rack. (laughs) So we started explaining what History Goes Bump was all about. And it was amusing because when the husband came down with their luggage and so forth, he said, you know, she's been stalking this car waiting for somebody to come out because she wanted (laughs) wanted to to know more. It was very funny. They were very sweet. Yeah. So she's like, I'm going to put that on and we're going to listen to it while we're going down there. And so we were looking for them in Key West, see if we'd run into them. But there's a lot of people down there. So there sure was. So if you're listening, welcome. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Of course, we get comments at a lot of different places. I went over to YouTube and we had some comments over there I wanted to share. Tasha had said this on the Old South Pittsburgh Hospital video. We are going April 29th. The first time I went, we were in the ER, the first part, and my jacket got tugged and camera strap pulled out of my hand. Oh, my. I hope they didn't drop their camera. 
I left during the first break. I was so freaked out. Aww. <laughs> oh, you're supposed to stay. Now you're getting some activity. This time I am more braver. Ha ha. So I can't wait to get in there and investigate. I'm super pumped up. I want to go to the Harriman. I think it's this Old South Pittsburgh Hospital on steroids. So we need to check out the Harriman. Sounds good to me. Hetzler Racing also commented on YouTube on our St. Augustine Cordova Street video. We love St. Augustine and have been there many times. We're probably due to go back again soon. We took a ghost tour one trip and the guide told us to take multiple pictures each time we shot something. At the Huguenot Cemetery, I took three shots in quick succession in the area of the headstone you mentioned. And in the second shot, there was a strange orb that was not in the others. I showed the guide and her reaction was, what is that? Interesting. I'd love to see that picture. And Granny Vape said under our Paranormal Conversations 11, time slips might explain a few things, but I think ghosts are more than one thing. There's stone tape theory. Sometimes it just plays for us. And what about the interactive ghosts? There's so much we may never understand. My best and weirdest experience that gave me that shock factor was a light bulb unscrewing itself right in front of me. Whoa. (laughs) I jumped real good, said, well, that was entertaining. But I will pat myself on the back. I didn't scream. I might have squeaked a little and I didn't run away. Very nice. Good for you. Want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery Alex Smith. We're going to be burying you in the niche wall. And Graylin Shea. We're going to be putting you in a garden crypt. And because you're at that level, you're going to be getting your HGB mug in three months. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. They built their homes on stilts with woven, 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 woven. What? With woven. Oh, did you? You didn't say woven. I think I started to say woven. Woven? Woof. (laughs) (laughs) The New York Times reported on July 3rd, 1961, that Ermist Hem... Ermist? Ermist. Did I say Ermist? Is that what came out of my mouth? (laughs) You did. (laughs) Oh my gosh.